man, and can you believe that we are already here, that we are about to embark on another new year? For some of you, you can't believe that it has come so quickly. And for others, a fresh start could not come soon enough. <laughs> Amen. The new year, of course, you know, always t tends to be this time when we do some self-reflection. When we evaluate maybe what, what, what went well over this last year and maybe where we really veered off course. It tends to be this time of resolutions, of course, where we would refocus or maybe it's reprioritize. And we vow to be better with our resolutions this time around, right? To maybe do uh, the diet a little longer than just the month of January. Am I right? Isn't it amazing how throughout the year we so quickly tend to lose focus on maybe some of the goals that we set. And I don't think oftentimes it's for lack of effort. It's just because, well, there tends to be so many distractions in life. And through, throughout uh, an entire year, boy, it is difficult to maintain a focus. So this morning I thought it would be a little fun to uh, demonstrate this. I am actually going to uh, do a fun little test with you, all right? It's called an alertness test, and it's going to test how well you are able to keep focused without being distracted, okay? So in a moment, um, I'm going to show you a little video, and I will prepare you ahead of time. There are two different teams, Okay? There is a white team and a black team, and both of those teams are going to be passing around a ball to their teammates. Okay? Your job, here is the test, your job is to count how many times the white team passes the ball to each other. Okay? Everybody got that? How many times the white team passes the ball, and afterwards um, we will see how many of you are able to guess that correctly, okay? Are you ready? Are you with me? Okay, here you go. Here's your video. This is a test. How many times does the white team pass the rubber band ball? Go!
All right, there he's entering in the circle right there. He's doing some karate chops and he's gonna go all the way through uh, the other side of the circle there. There is your uh, kung fu gorilla. Very nice. Now, if you were some of the people who noticed the gorilla there, some of you, very good, very observant. That's very impressive because, of course, most people are completely oblivious to it. And for obvious reason, it's because, well, your focus is drawn somewhere else. And, you know, with all the different things competing for our attention, it often tends to be the same struggle that we will have in life. At the beginning of the year, we, we of course, tend to prioritize. Maybe it's even simplify. But it doesn't take long, does it, until we have that same sort of feeling that there's just not enough hours in the day to get done everything that it is that we need to get done. It can feel like we're just sort of spinning our wheels, like we're doing a lot of things, but all of those things don't add up to a whole lot of meaning. It's why we'll go to the book of Colossians this morning, if you're there, Bibles. This is actually an, an awesome book to read, I would say, even for the beginning of a new year. Because much of it speaks to what our lives should be centered around. What it is that we should really be focused on. For if we will not establish a focus of our life for what it is that we value most in life, well, the world will certainly do that for us. And so Colossians is going to encourage us to develop this laser-like focus right on Jesus. Because it is only by pursuing him first in our lives that we will find all of our needs provided for. We will find our life being significant. We will find the peace that our souls so desperately crave. Now, the people of Colossae, which is where Paul is writing to, had obviously become so bogged down in like things to do or rules to keep that their life really had begun lacking in meaning. They had become so confused over uh, what their life should really stand for, what they should be focused on, which was actually a, a really interesting struggle for the Colossian people. Because you see, the town of Colossae, well, it was a quiet place, up in the hills, sort of out of the way. The major trade routes of that day actually bypassed the town on their way to some other major ports such as Ephesus, which was about a hundred miles to the north. And there they would have lived a pretty simple life, free from a lot of the distractions or the temptations that you would find in a lot of these major cities. In fact, most of Paul's letters that he writes, he's actually writing to believers in those really big metropolitan type areas where sin is just rampant, like Ephesus. Corinth was another one. I mean, just on every street corner was just this immorality. 
But Colossae and the Colossians, they didn't quite live in that same context. And they didn't deal with such blatant um, immorality. But yet, they would still struggle to find meaning in their life. You know, it just goes to show you that significance is never really found in things like living simply, or maybe it's being a good person, or or living comfortably, appearing successful. Significance is only truly found, Colossians is going to say, in a genuine relationship with Jesus. And the Colossian people, they initially had it, but they just needed to be, well, a little refocused. Now, just to give you a little bit of a history lesson, the town of Colossae, well, it had had its heyday. See, back in about four to 500 BC, it actually was this big destination, a lot of traders, because there it was developed this uh, purplish type dye. It had become world-renowned, used in clothing and material and everything. And so oftentimes people from all over the known world would actually travel there in order to trade for it. But by this time, by the first century, it had really just become a forgotten city. In fact, Paul never actually even went there on any of his missionary journeys. But he had heard. He had heard that the message that he had preached about Jesus previously in that area had made its way up to the people of Colossae. And they believed and they accepted Jesus as their Savior. But it would seem that they began to take the truth of Jesus and merge him with some other life philosophies. You see, with so many different foreigners living in that town who had originally settled there during the purple dye boom, it it created like this whole mixture of cultures and views on life and even, of course, spirituality. And so for the Christians there, it wasn't long before they begin to think of Jesus as being really good but that he also wasn't quite enough. You see, he wasn't their only focus. He was just one of many. Now, does that sound familiar? I mean, you look at the culture around us, and I would say that we would find a lot of people who would say that, you know what? Jesus is good and maybe even true, but yet they've never made him the main focus of their lives. I mean, you know how it works, right? I mean, we just, a lot of times, we'll sort of try to sprinkle in just enough Jesus to, uh, you know, get his blessing. Or maybe feel like we're, we're doing good and we're good people or we're deserving of the kind of life that he offers. And if we're not careful, we will do just as the Colossians were doing Believing in Jesus, but still trusting in all sorts of other things to bring them peace and happiness. Just like in that 
um, alertness test. We will begin to focus on the less meaningful things, and sometimes we will just completely miss in life the gorilla in the room. And so Colossians, well, it is meant to give us this better perspective of life, to refocus us on the only thing that is truly worth pursuing with our life, and that is a relationship with Jesus. So if you got your Bibles open, we'll open them up. Um, listen to what Paul says here in the beginning. We'll, we'll begin in verse 4 if you're following along. He says, For we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and your love for all God's people, which come from your confident hope of what God has reserved for you in heaven. You have had this expectation ever since you first heard the truth of the good news. This same good news that came to is going out all over the world. It's bearing fruit everywhere by changing lives, just as it changed your life from the day you first heard and understood the truth about God's wonderful grace. And so we have this expectation of life, of heaven. We will even witness changed lives as paul says because of the good news now some of your translations there will probably use a different word and it will just simply say gospel it's because of the gospel which in fact means the good news it's why we would call the uh, the first four books of the new testament we will often refer to them as the gospels because they share the good news about Jesus. And here is the good news that the Bible shares and that Paul speaks of. Here's the gospel. It's that Jesus came as God in the flesh and he died on the cross for our sins and he rose from the dead. And if we will believe this, and follow Jesus as our Lord and our Savior. He will forgive our sins and he will transform our life. That is the gospel. And one thing that the Bible makes very clear for us is that the gospel is our only hope. It's why it's such good news. For we are all in need of a Savior because we can't fix the issue of sin that we have in our life. And we are all in need of the presence of Jesus in life because he is the only one powerful enough to change our life. You know, the world may wonder, what has the power to change something even so hopeless as a failing marriage. And it's the gospel. Or what, can, what has a love so deep that can heal a past filled with wounds, abandonment? And it's the gospel. What power can provide for every one of our needs, no matter maybe our, our debt or our health or the economy? And it's the gospel. 
I mean, in a world filled with so much hurt, confusion, and loss, everyone is in need of the hope of the gospel. I heard uh, a cool story of hope a while back, for there was a large city school district who began to implement this program for children to help them keep up with their studies for those who had to stay um, uh, uh, stay in the hospital. And so there was a teacher in the program who was assigned to this particular child. And so the teacher called up the, the regular teacher of the student and asked, you know, is there anything that I can specifically help with? And the boy's regular teacher said, yeah, actually, we're beginning to study nouns and adverbs in class. It would be great if you could help him understand those so he doesn't fall so far behind. And so this teacher in the program, she went to visit the boy later that afternoon in the hospital. And upon entering the room, she was uh, kind of taken aback by the sight of him. No one had warned her of the condition that he was in. See, he had been involved in a fire and was badly burned. And the sight of him was so upsetting to her that she kind of stammered over her words as she tried to tell him that, you know, she's been sent here by the school to help out with his nouns and his adverbs. Well, a little later when she left his room, she felt quite terrible because she really didn't feel, you know, like she had accomplished a whole lot. And when she came back the next day, a nurse stopped and asked her, what did you do to that boy? The teacher began to apologize, and the nurse said, no, 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 no. You see, we, we were so worried about that little boy, but ever since yesterday, his attitude has completely changed. He's beginning to fight back. He's now responding to the treatment. It's as if he suddenly decided that he is going to live. And the boy was asked two weeks later and explained that he had, in fact, given up hope, assuming that he was likely going to die until that teacher arrived, he said. He said, once the teacher began to visit me, I realized that the school would never bother sending a teacher to work on nouns and adverbs with a dying boy. <laughs> what a little bit of hope can make in a person's life. What difference hope can make in our lives. For some, you need to know that there is life after maybe a broken heart. Maybe for others, you need to believe that life is still worth living, even though your body is weak, frail. For some, you need to be confident that God is going to provide. Or for some, maybe you just need to know that there is purpose in the daily monotony of changing diapers, buying groceries, and it is all the hope of Jesus. In fact, in those verses there that we read in verse 5, Paul uses that word hope. And when he says hope, he's not referring to us just keeping our fingers crossed and wishing for the best. 
No, in fact, when all of the New Testament writers, when they would use that word hope, what they're referring to is a confidence in God. Because of what they believe about his character and his promises. Because remember, what we have here in the Bible is is a bunch of New Testament writers that are not speculating. No, you see, they know what they saw. They know what they heard. They were with Jesus. They would say, listen, I spoke to him. I was with him. I walked with him. I was there when he died on the cross, and I was there when three days later he pulled off Easter. I was there. They don't just write as if to say, we hope this is real. They write out of a confidence because you could not convince them that they did not see what they saw. In fact, they were so confident, the apostles, that all of them except for one would die because of their faith in Jesus. They knew him to be true. And so they staked their entire lives on the hope that they had in him. And let me propose that the greatest resolution we could ever make is to anchor our lives to that same hope. In Hebrews chapter 6, you don't have to turn there, but I'll read it for you. It sort of gives us that kind of imagery for our life. It's really cool. It says, We who have fled to him, have fled to God for refuge, can have great confidence as we hold to the hope that lies before us. This hope is as strong and trustworthy. It is an anchor for our souls. Imagine the difference that a hope of Jesus could make in our lives if he were to become the main focus of our lives. And Paul goes on in verses 15 through 20 to describe this supremacy and power of Jesus. Because the Colossians were skeptical uh, that putting their whole, all of their hope in Jesus was going to be enough. See, a lot of them had bought into a popular belief at the time, which was called Gnosticism. And it was this belief that Jesus was good and even that his teachings should be followed, but there was a but. For real spiritual fulfillment, even salvation, they would say, well, you have to attain a a special sort of divine knowledge. It was all sort of kind of mystical and, you know, elitist. It was sort of like finding the Da Vinci Code of their day a little bit. And so Paul is dispelling that myth that Jesus is not enough. And he will say, listen, he is everything. Listen to this, beginning in verse 15. It says, Jesus is the, is the visible image of the invisible God. 
He existed before anything was created and is supreme over all creation. For through him, God created everything in the heavenly realms and on earth. He made the things we can see and the things we can't see, such as thrones, kingdoms, rulers, and authorities in the unseen world. Everything was created through him and for him. He existed before anything else, and he holds all creation together. Christ is also the head of the church, which is his body. He is the beginning, supreme over all who rise from the dead. So he is first in everything. For God, in all of his fullness, was pleased to live in Christ, and through him, God reconciled everything to himself. He made peace with everything in heaven and on earth by means of Christ's blood on the cross. Now listen, in that passage, we do not see the kind of Jesus in Hallmark cards or made-for-TV movies. I mean, that description of Christ is nothing short of cosmic because he holds all things together. In fact, if he were to simply let go, creation would cease to exist. I mean, that is an amazing thought. And so he is to be worshipped as the creator and the sustainer of all things. When the Apollo 11 space shuttle landed on the moon in 1969, it was, of course, a very monumental moment in our nation's history. And also, as you can imagine, for those couple of astronauts. Most of us are probably most familiar with, uh, with the name Neil Armstrong, right? He's the one who uttered those now famous words, one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. You come up with a phrase like that and you kind of go down in history a little bit. The other guy, his other crewmate, Buzz Aldrin, may not have been um, quite, people aren't quite as familiar with him. He actually stepped onto the moon probably about 20 minutes after Neil Armstrong. But yet, he also has a claim to fame of his own. Believe it or not, but he goes down in history as being the first man to pee on the moon. How do you like that for marking your territory? <laughs> Buzz Aldrin is also the one who radioed down to Houston right before the two ast astronauts stepped onto the moon. And he requested a few moments, a few minutes of radio silence. And Houston actually granted that request. And so if you go back in the records, you'll actually see it's a little bizarre that there is no communication between mission control and the space shuttle for the several minutes before they stepped onto the moon. And do you want to know what Aldrin did with that silence? He took communion. His response was awe and worship. Oh, because it is one thing 
to walk on the moon, but it is a whole nother other thing to create a moon. And so in that moment, he acknowledged God's power and sovereignty as creator of the universe. And we are to do the same thing with our lives. In fact, not only should we place our hope in the gospel, but because of Jesus' power and authority, well, we should also understand that the gospel is in fact our strength. For listen, we will miss out power in our lives if we believe him to be the creator of the universe and don't make him the center of our universe. What we will begin to do is we will begin to sort of live these compartmentalized lives where we come and maybe we pray and we worship underneath this roof, but yet don't do that same thing underneath the roof of our own homes. Or we might pray to him maybe before a meal, but yet we won't consult him before making major life decisions. We might pray for his blessings, but yet never allow him to order our finances or our priorities. You see, according to Paul, the gospel or the good news of Jesus is not something that just becomes a part of our life. It is to define our whole life. For it is the very source of our hope and our strength. Listen to what Paul says in Ephesians 3.16. He says, I pray that from his glorious unlimited resources, he will empower you with inner strength through his spirit. Then Christ will make his home in your hearts as you trust in him. Your roots will grow down into God's love and keep you strong. And so maybe our question is, are we becoming a people that are being rooted in God? When the Bible speaks of being rooted in God, a lot of times it'll sort of use the imagery of food. Because, of course, just as we are strengthened and we are nourished by the food that we eat, so too we are also spiritually nourished by taking in God's word. And yet a lot of people, I think, will sort of develop an unhealthy approach to God's word. Because they will gorge themselves on it one day a week, a Sunday. And then they will enter this six-day period of starvation. Where the Bible gets untouched, or, or maybe it's not thought of, until the following Sunday feast. Now, can you imagine if we actually approached eating our meals in this same way? A lot of us, most of us, probably wouldn't survive on that kind of diet. And for those of us who could, we would find ourselves just merely surviving, right? Not truly living. 
because we would be missing out on the nourishment necessary to really thrive throughout our week. Jesus says this in Matthew 4, 4, that people do not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And so, yes, the most popular resolution come New Year's will always be to go on the diet, right? And, and to make the body uh, healthier and stronger, which is a good thing. But if we're looking for even great life transformation, may we consider developing a healthy diet of reading God's word. Maybe you would even this new year resolve to make that into a daily practice. For it is important to our souls. And if you're just beginning maybe to develop that sort of practice, if that's something that you desire to do, may I encourage you that you do not need to gorge yourself in order to be nourished by it. And so you don't necessarily have to read a book of the Bible or, or even a chapter of the Bible a day. You can just do one verse. Maybe it's two. But you would take those one or two verses and, and you would spend some time with them, even maybe throughout your whole day, and you would take the time to really reflect on them, to pray over them. Because what is most important is that we just simply begin the practice of making God's word a priority in our life. And if we'll begin filling ourselves with the love, the knowledge, the power of God's word, man, think about how that will affect the people that we are becoming. So next point about the gospel, it's that the gospel changes who we become. Remember that that is Christ's ultimate goal. He loves us so much that he will accept us just the way that we are. But yet he loves us so much that he would never want us to just remain the same. I mean, that would actually probably be quite tragic for most of us. <laughs> In fact, the gospel should change us so radically that our pre-gospel life and our now gospel-filled life should look completely different. Paul will even say in 2 Corinthians 5.17, you may be familiar with the verse, that if anyone is in Christ, he is a what? A new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. There's an old myth told in West Africa about caterpillars and butterflies. It's told of two caterpillars wandering through the tall grass looking for their favorite leaves to eat. When all of a sudden, a beautiful butterfly fluttered overhead. And one of those caterpillars was so intrigued and just in awe of that beautiful flying creature. But the other caterpillar said, not for all the money in the world would I want to fly in the air like that. No, he felt contempt for the butter's, butterfly's 
flippant attitude. He said, no, my place is on the ground where I belong, uh, where there's place to crawl and food to gather. But that first caterpillar, oh, he felt something stir within his heart when he saw that butterfly. He had this inner hope, this conviction even, that crawling on the ground was not his true nature. And so he was mysteriously filled with this hope that he too could be up there with the butterflies. Well, after some time of crawling and eating and obsessing over thoughts of the butterfly, that caterpillar began to undergo a strange change. It had become fat by eating so much, so much so that it began to break through its own skin. And as it shed its skin, a chrysalis began to form. Now his caterpillar buddy just thought that he was being lazy, hanging upside down there for, you know, a couple of weeks. But then the impossible happened. It wasn't the old caterpillar that emerged from the cocoon, but a new life was birthed. It looked completely different. It was now a beautiful butterfly, bright colors, with a new sense of life and freedom. But the other caterpillar, he just stayed as he was, a caterpillar, crawling on the ground, eating leaves for the rest of his life. He never realized his true identity. He instead clung to what was familiar, where it was safe, never having an inkling of his true self. And the transformation of that other caterpillar, the butterfly, is the same sort of transformation that we undergo when we allow the gospel to take root and to touch all areas of our life. Like the caterpillar begins its metamorphosis by beginning to feed itself. Well, so too, we begin to feed ourselves with the word of God. And as we fill ourselves with it, we will begin to break out of and shed our old way of life. And we become, become something much more beautiful. Because we will begin to look less and less like our old self. And you know, we will begin to look more and more like Christ. In fact, in 2 Corinthians 3.18 Paul says, the Lord, who is the Spirit, makes us more and more like him as we are changed into his glorious image. You know, and the truly beautiful thing about the change or the transformation within us is that it's not accomplished by anything that we do. It's accomplished by what Jesus has already done. It's the gospel. We're completely inadequate to transform ourselves. I mean, we can, we can fake things for a little while, and we can be motivated for some time, but most of the time all we're really doing is not necessarily changing ourselves as much as we are just sort of delaying ourselves. That's kind of one of the problems with New Year's resolutions, isn't it? 
Like I can deprive myself of carbs, but all I really become is, you know, a, a little bit, bit more fit, but much more grumpier version of myself. <laughs> I need my carbs. We tend to tinker with sort of superficial things about us, and really the reason why is because we do not have the truth to transform our life. That hope of change is only through the gospel. Each week, we get to be reminded of the change and, and the hope, the power that is available to us through Jesus' life and his sacrifice. And we do that through communion. In fact, when Jesus instituted communion to his disciples or his followers, it was for that very purpose that we would be reminded often of the gospel. And so there's not anything too special about communion if you're new to it. It's just simply a symbolic act for us. We take that cracker, which represents Jesus' life, that he came here as God to live among us so that he may have relationship with us. And we take that juice, and it reminds us of the blood that was shed on the cross so that we could have forgiveness for our sins. We're going to take communion in, uh, in just a moment. If you're new to church or new to communion, or maybe it's that you're still not quite sure about Jesus. You're still a little skeptical. And we are so happy that you're here. You can just hang out and ponder these things. If you're a believer here this morning and you are ready to celebrate the gospel once again that we do every week, I'm going to have you get up in just a moment and you can grab that communion, those elements, bring them back to your seats. And um, after singing a song, we're actually going to take the communion together this morning. So you can just hang on to them for a moment. All right. Let me pray for us. Lord, we thank you for your good news. And we celebrate that now through communion. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Amen.